I would encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Luke, the Gospel according to Luke, and specifically today we're going to be looking at verses 39 through 56 as we continue on in the Gospel according to Luke. Song is one of the ways that God's people have been called upon to, to praise the Lord and to teach one another. It is one of the ways that we rehearse before the Lord his doings. In prayer, we speak to God, and in song, we also speak to God. We give him praise and honor and glory. We go over the ways that he has not just blessed us, but blessed his people. One of the things that we remember then is that we have songs uh, throughout Scripture that were offered up by God's people, people like Mary and Elizabeth, as we shall see, that recount what the Lord has done. And we should be learning from these particular songs. So one of the things uh, you have actually, believe it or not, you may not have realized this, you sang today Mary's song. You sang the Magnificat. Uh, it comes from that, uh, that phrase, my, my soul doth magnify the Lord in the old KJV English. Uh, and the, uh, the Latin for that was to, uh, to magnify, to, to amplify his greatness. The Magnificat, therefore, is her great song, and we can learn much from it. Um, and I pray that today we will. But before we go to God's word, let's go to God who gave us this word, and let us ask for his blessing. God, our fathers, we come to your word so often a dullness hangs over us. There is something that uh, makes it impenetrable. We know, Lord, that for the unregenerate man, there's a veil that hangs over your word that obscures it. They don't see, O oh Lord Christ, within it. They can search the scriptures. They can understand the words. Uh, they can appreciate the grammar, the flow, the poetry, and so on. But, Lord, unless you work your illuminating grace within us, unless you give us light within we will never appreciate your word. We're about to come to one of the most exalted songs in all of scripture, spoken by this humble handmaiden of the Lord. But Lord, it can be dull and boring to us if you do not show us your light. So I pray, Lord, that you would help me to open up this word and that as we read together, Lord, we would be amazed once again at that which you have been doing. Help us to remember that this song was the culmination of thousands of years of redemptive history, of you working your will in the world, bringing your Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world to die for our sins. Lord, this should be something that amazes us beyond anything else. May it be so today. May we have a due sense of awe at what you have been doing and remind us that we too are part of that history of redemption. May it be that we are our pleasant part and that we look forward to that day of Christ's return with longing, expectation, and then great joy rather than fear and loathing. Oh Lord, we do pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. As I said, I'm going to be reading from Luke chapter 1, and I will be reading verses 39 through 56. I remind you, this is the word of the Lord. Now Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste to a city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. And it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary that the babe leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. 
Then she spoke out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of of your womb. But why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. Blessed is she who believed, for there will be a fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior, for he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on him, is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scouted the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her house. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. In Colossians 3.16, writing to the Christians in Colossae, uh, Paul instructed them, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. And in that, of course, he was emphasizing the importance of prayer for the Christian church and in the Christian life and giving sound instruction. But how far... The church has fallen since those days in terms of the way and what we sing. In uh, pointing that out using a, uh, a humorous example, uh, Shema Marima, a uh, Christian satirist, created a song called the Worship Song Song, and he made up a group to sing it called Random Action Verb, uh, which is a play on all of those songs, that, or rather those groups and churches that have names that are elevate or uh, desecrate, or whatever the, uh, the name is that they come up with um, uh, to express themselves. But these, this, these are the, the first two parts of that particular song. This is the first verse of the worship song song. The words are simple, so sing along, long. I am terrible, but he is able. It's incredible. Hope this song's relatable. Life's gotten me down, I'm at the end of my rope. Here's an out-of-context Bible verse about hope. This is the chorus. All right, sorry. This is the chorus. We're lifting our voices loud and triumphant. We're singing the chorus. It's repetitive. It's repetitive. It's repetitive. All my problems are gone. Now, That's a fairly accurate spoof of the miserable mass-produced problem the majority of the evangelical church is singing and being fed these days. You're not teaching anybody anything in that. We're not growing. We're we're simply going through a pattern and we're being carried along by by the music itself. But at the end of the day, are we really teaching one another? Are we really growing? Are Are we relating not just to the society around us, but most importantly, are we relating to our Savior and that wonderful redemption that he is working out in us? How different then are are these two spirit-inspired songs that we saw here, praise from Mary and Elizabeth that we read in these particular passages. Um, 
uh, we need to be reminded, don't we, that it's not merely hark the herald angels who are supposed to be singing and praising God. God's people, that is you, brothers and sisters, you are supposed to be singing. And singing, as Paul put it so well, with grace in your hearts to the Lord, not merely to one another, not to yourself. Although, as we sing to ourselves, we should be rehearsing once again the, the things that God has done in the world, and not just for us, but that redemption might be advanced in every age. And just as when we read the Bible, we are once again being reminded, preaching the gospel to ourselves as we sing, we should be also reminded of God's mighty acts of redemption. We are supposed to sing. And what is supposed to be the substance of that song? Well, not, you know, meaningless, repetitive mantras, but rather the substance of our singing is supposed to be God's mighty acts of redemption. We're supposed to be praising him for the ways in which he has been so good to his people. He did not have to be. That's the substance of mercy, isn't it? The fact that mercy is an unmerited favor. We are amazed by what God has done for, for wretches like us. And we, we break forth into song as a result. Whenever we see God in the scriptures doing this, uh, these mighty acts of redemption, delivering Israel, for instance, out of bondage and idolatry, defeating their enemies, returning them to the land after their exile in, in Babylon. There's this new outpouring of song. People sing of the goodness of God in delivering them from their, their, their difficulties, not just their day-to-day you know, -day difficulty helping you to overcome your depression about what's happening or your bad job or rather, but your real problem. That's something that we should be singing about. We should be singing about the fact that God has delivered us from our real enemies. And our real enemies are not merely, you know, the people who get us down. Our real enemies are the world, the flesh, and the devil. And without his help, we could never have been delivered from them. He promised he would, and he has. So whenever that does happen in a new way, there's this outpouring of song. And the New Testament is no exception to that. As soon as the great good news of the long-awaited Messiah's imminent arrival is announced immediately, you have those who believe rejoicing and singing. Elizabeth sings, Mary sings, we're going to see Simeon singing, and even the, the previously doubting Zacharias sings the praise of God as soon as his mouth is opened once again. They immediately break forth into song, praising the Lord and exalting his name. Now, all true songs of praise to God are important, but these two from Mary and Elizabeth are particularly important because they come at the advent of the most important event in history. And what is the most important event in history but the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to save his people from their sins? And the songs, as we uh, unpack them, we should see how they relate these great truths about our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, and what he was sent to do. And as, as such, the, the songs are worthy of our close attention. But it's amazing, isn't it, when we consider that these words were given to a humble handmaiden of the Lord, somebody living in a very, very poor place in a backwater of the Roman Empire. These weren't given to a Handel or a great composer or you know, somebody who was trained to create librettos of praise, but rather 
simply to a young woman. And what was the great gift that she was given but the Holy Spirit dwelling within her to be accompanied? It's amazing when you think about it. This is a woman who at one point in her life was indwelt by two people in the Godhead, the the son uh, who was conceived in her womb and the Holy Spirit within her heart. And the Holy Spirit brings forth this song of praise in response to the great work of the Lord. So let's take a look at this. And and to set it in its context, uh, as we see these verses opening, we learn immediately that after she receives the good news that she has been chosen to give birth to the Son of God, Jesus Christ, Mary leaves uh, the town in which she dwells, Nazareth, and she makes this long journey south All of Israel really centers on the Jordan River Valley, the mountains that are along it. She travels down this valley south to visit her cousin cousin Elizabeth, the wife of Zacharias, this priest who had been struck dumb because he had initially doubted the good news that his son John, that well first his, his wife would conceive in her old age, and that she would give birth to the prophet who would precede the coming of the Messiah. She has now gone to visit Elizabeth, who is in her pregnancy. Why does Mary visit Elizabeth? Well, there are several reasons. Some of them are obvious. First, you had the strong hint, of course, that was given by the angel Gabriel, who mentions her cousin's miraculous pregnancy, and she wants to go and see this. Secondly, only Elizabeth, blessed as she was by this similar miracle, would have understood what was happening to Mary. Mary, you remember, is still only betrothed. She's not married, and yet she is pregnant. So Elizabeth would have been one of the only people in all of Israel at that moment in time, indeed all of the world, who would have understood how and why what was happening to Mary was going on. Thirdly, to rejoice with her over what the Lord was doing at this singular moment in redemptive history. This was one of the only people on the face of the planet who could truly rejoice at what was about to happen. And then the fourth, and this is, I admit this is just a possibility, uh, Elizabeth's husband, Zacharias, had been struck dumb, and Mary would no doubt have wanted to help her in the midst of that. Uh, Zacharias would not be allowed, would not be given uh, the ability to speak again until John was born. So that would have been a very quiet time for Elizabeth. So Mary goes to help her in the midst of this. And there is this sweet fellowship, obviously, between these two women, uh, a sweet fellowship that only people who know the Lord truly share. I was reminded of that as we went to, uh, as I said, a wedding in New Mexico. And I met chaplains and I met other people who knew the Lord. And immediately you have something uh, distinctly different about you and them that sets you apart from the world and understanding a worldview, uh, a joy, hopefully, within your hearts. And you can talk about the, I, I was talking to a chaplain, talking about the way that the Lord had saved him, brought him out of Roman Catholicism, brought him into the church, brought him uh, into a relationship with his wife. And I, I kept seeing the similarities in his life and in mine in the way that the Lord had redeemed the two of us and brought us into uh, a a wonderful married situation and, and, and so on. That is something that the redeemed of the Lord alone understand. Those who have gone through that experience of tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. It's something that, I I mean, for instance, I couldn't help but reflect the sadness that I often feel when I'm with members of my biological family, I mean, my family outside of of my immediate nuclear family, that I don't have that, that closeness. We have a closeness, obviously, of shared bloodlines. 
but not of a shared inheritance and hopes and so on. I have, I have hopes that the Lord will, will change that. And so, for instance, my brother and the flesh will become my brother in, in fact as well uh, in Christ. But in the meantime, there's a closeness that I have with my brothers and sisters in Christ that I don't share with the ordinary people in the world, the natural men and women. You should have that too. I hope you do. I hope you have that great joy when you speak to people who know of the Lord. Elizabeth and Mary had that par excellence in a way that was singular because of what the Lord was doing. So Mary goes down to visit Elizabeth. She enters into her house, and as soon as she greets her, and the sound of her voice comes forth, the baby, John the Baptist, uh, the infant within her womb, leaps for joy. Now, knowing why John leapt for joy is easy. John leapt for joy because he knows that this voice is the voice of his Savior's mother coming forth. But now, how does this, this six-month-old baby in the womb know these things? Well, this is a baby who is filled with the Holy Spirit in a way that we don't ordinarily expect. You and I don't expect that our children would be regenerate from the womb. It'd be wonderful. I, I wish that was the case, but normally it's the ordinary preaching of the world. I shouldn't say ordinary. It's the preaching of the word and the teaching of the gospel effectually accompanied by the Holy Spirit's working in their hearts after they've come to years of discretion where they are saved. Very few people are saved uh, in infancy, but we see here that it is possible for somebody to be regenerate from the womb. This is one of the reasons why we have such hope for our children dying in infancy. We know that it is not impossible for the Holy Spirit to enter into someone who is in the womb and to save them, to change them. But we know this is a baby filled with the Holy Spirit, and this is in fulfillment of that promise that the angel Gabriel had given to Zacharias in verse 13 of this, uh, or 15, I'm sorry, of this same uh, chapter. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. John would be regenerate. And so John leaps in his mother's womb, and Elizabeth utters her song of praise, and she declares that Mary is blessed. Why is Mary so blessed? Because Mary is going to be the mother of the Savior of mankind, the blessing of the nations. Now, this is something you've got to keep in mind. These are promises that were made going all the way back to the garden and the fall. You remember that great promise that the Lord made. We call it the Proto-Euangelion, the first gospel. You'll find it in Genesis 3.15, where he promises that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent that her child would be the instrumentality by which Satan and his counterfeit kingdom would be cast down forever. This is a fulfillment of the promise that God made to Adam and Eve after the fall. This is a moment of such importance, one can hardly imagine it. And yet it doesn't happen, you know, in The Hague. It doesn't happen at some sort of great diplomatic conference of world leaders. It's two women standing in a house in ancient Israel where this is being discussed. One of the things that I hope you see as we go through the gospel and indeed throughout the, the Bible is God's priorities and man's priorities are entirely different. And the way that the Lord uses the humble things to overcome the mighty. How the seed of an ordinary woman would eventually be the means of our deliverance. An extraordinary seed, admittedly. The son of God himself, but, but born of this humble handmaiden of the Lord. 
Now, Elizabeth, when she rejoices, is not merely rejoicing uh, that Jesus, the Messiah, a, a great son or great David's greater son, uh, is, is being born. Elizabeth acknowledges that Jesus is her Lord, that Mary is the mother of my Lord, and that this child she is going to bear is nothing less than God the Son, now incarnate, taking a true body and a reasonable soul to himself in the womb of her cousin Mary, something that's impossible for us to understand, but it should amaze us that it happened. And there is no jealousy. Notice, I mean, Elizabeth doesn't say, I only got the prophet, you get the Messiah. How's that fair? I'm older. She doesn't do any of that. Even though Mary had been chosen to receive the greater blessing, Elizabeth is overjoyed to be visited by the mother of her Savior, overjoyed at what God is doing within Mary. She too is humble and Note where the praise goes in the songs of both women to God and to to Christ. Mary is blessed because of the grace that God has shown in his blessing her and choosing her to be the mother of Jesus. One of the things that we should notice here is that when somebody receives a blessing from the Lord, our praise should be to God on their behalf. We shouldn't be jealous of them. I have seen... um, and. uh, you know, the men that I went to seminary with, many of them have been exalted. They have gone on to write great books, to teach great things, and so on. And I could sit and say, well, there's no fear. I didn't get that. Nobody invites me to conferences with 5,000 people, and so on. I'd be scared silly, let's face it. But it should be something where I am blessing God for the way that he has used ordinary men to preach his gospel in extraordinary ways. And so Elizabeth is overjoyed at what God is doing in the life of Mary. And she expresses her faith, her great faith. Truly, as Hebrews 11:1 puts it, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. This great faith of Elizabeth and Mary is displayed in their outpouring of love, not just for one another, but for God. And uh, faith, to quote Calvin, gives way to the divine promises that they may obtain their accomplishment in us. These two women are walking by faith and not by sight, looking forward to what God has done. Notice that the way they assume that everything, now that these, the, the great miracle first of Elizabeth about to give forth the, uh, bring forth the, the prophet who would go before Christ, and then Mary about to bring forth Christ, the Messiah, the Redeemer, they assume that all the other things will follow. Immediately, they, they assume that God's promises, now that he's begun this chain, that they will come to their conclusion. We should do that as well. We who have enjoyed the blessing of salvation, should we doubt at any point that God will carry it through? And not just the salvation of the world that he's promised, but our own salvation, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it. Mary doesn't think that the pregnancy is going to be suddenly terminated, that the Son of God is going to be stillborn or anything like that. She assumes that it will be carried out. Don't doubt God's working in your own life. Assume that he who began a good work in you will finish it. He is not just the author of your faith. I can't tell you how many stories I have started and not finished. There's a lot. But God never does that. Every story he begins, he finishes. He is the author 
and the finisher. God's promises always remain true. Mary had learned to trust in him. And we should as well. But also remember that this humility that they are given. This is a, it's a beautiful mark of, of spirit-filled believers. I, I love meeting somebody who has really grown in grace and because inevitably they are, they're just humble people who are easy to be around. And usually they don't realize how humble they are. They are people who don't exalt themselves. The worst thing is the self-exalting Christian. Proud Christian should, rightly understood, be an oxymoron. For a Christian acknowledges, first and foremost, in the very name, Christian, that they were saved by a savior, a messiah. And so we should not be proud people, but rather people who have great boasting in the Lord, that our faith should center on them. And so Mary breaks forth into this this beautiful song of praise to her God. Now, there are three parts of Mary's humble song. First, Mary offers this, this solemn thanksgiving for the mercy of God, which she had experienced in her own person. The second part is she sings of God's power and his judgments. And then thirdly, she applies these to the, to the present events that are going on, singing about the redemption that God had promised and now was granting to his church. Promises made and then promises delivered on. Now, the first thing you should notice about this song is the joy and the gratitude shown by Mary. She magnifies the Lord. She exalts his name in her very soul, praising him for his mercy and his might. She wants to lift him up on high. Now, we can't lift God any higher than he is. But in our own estimation, we should be lifting him as high as we possibly can. And this comes from a heart that loves and appreciates God. Hypocrites, when they sing, for the most part, they sing the praises of God with their mouths only, but not with their hearts And true prayer and true singing of the word, it has to come from a heart that's filled with God's grace, that loves God. It doesn't matter how well you sing. You know, the the funny thing is, I have heard, uh, we're coming up for the season, uh, I've already mentioned them, I, I, I do so love Handel and the Messiah, I really do. It's a sad thing that this is the only season that we generally hear Handel's Messiah being sung. But you know, I have heard Handel's Messiah and the oratorios from it being sung so well with such skill by people who don't believe a word of it. Not a word. What is that? But it's, it's emptiness, vanity. It's just a demonstration of gifts given by God by a person who doesn't even appreciate the one who gave him the gifts, which is a sad thing indeed. But Mary, I don't know how well Mary sang. You know, maybe she was a, a pleasant or sweet singer or so on. Maybe she had that, you know, the teenage voice that modulates without any sort of control and goes all over. It doesn't matter because her heart was filled with grace to the Lord. And so she was singing from the bottom of her heart about what God had done. The praises of God spring forth from the innermost depths of our soul. And so all of our songs should be marked by joy. As we Songs of praise should be something natural to us. One of the things that's really weird is when you, you're, you're in a congregation of God's people and you look around and it's usually the guys, unfortunately, who are standing there and everybody else is singing. They're like, you know, what, what are you doing, guys? Why is it that so I, nobody cares what you sound like, really. Nobody. I have stood next to elders 
who have almost made my ears bleed because their singing is bad. And I'm not very good myself. I am so grateful that Dave and the guys who sit back there mute the mic when we are come to sing. But it doesn't matter because you're not singing to the people. Yes, we are, in one sense, we are teaching one another, exhorting one another, and lifting one another uh, together as we, we go before the throne of grace. But who are we singing to? We're singing to God. And if you have no desire to sing to God now, what makes you think you're going to want to sing to God in heaven? Or that you would be fit to do so? We are, first and foremost, a singing and praising people, if we are anything at all. And so, with Mary, it should be that our praise just naturally comes out as we sing of the unmerited favor of the Lord that has been shown to mankind and shown to us. Now, the second thing that should strike you about Mary's song is her deep knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures. Now, we know that this song was was uttered under the, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but remember, it's not robotic. It's not like Mary suddenly went, uh, my soul, you know, as the Lord seized her and took over her body as though she had been possessed. But rather, the Holy Spirit worked with all the things that the Lord had done within her, bringing forth that knowledge that had been given to her. Now, where did she learn the scriptures? Again, it wasn't that the Holy Spirit crammed it down into her at that point in time. But rather, that was the natural culmination of years of instruction in the synagogue, and then particularly from her parents, teaching her. And how well that, I mean, imagine this. Anna, the mother of Mary, as she was teaching her daughter about how the Lord had saved his people bringing them out of Egypt, how she had taken an old man and an old woman from Syria, had brought them into the promised land, given them children, given them a seed, and that how she was part of that seed, sitting down and teaching her day in, day out. Anna, I'm sure, had no idea how that knowledge would be used in crafting and shaping this inspired song so that we would appreciate it and generations after would appreciate it. But this song evidences the work of faithful parents. One of the most wonderful things that I saw in seminary, and I was, uh, I have to admit, I was jealous of it, was how there were all of these kids who knew scripture and who could bring it up. Why? Because their parents had taught them. And then those kids were being trained to go into ministry and perhaps in counseling or in the pulpit these young men were taking generations of knowledge and then using it to teach God's people. Their parents had no idea when they were four and five and they were going through family where, sit still, stop it, quiet, put down the cat, that kind of thing, that someday their kids would be occupying pulpits throughout this land. Just as Mary's parents had no idea that someday she would be singing the praises of God. And yet it happened. Parents, take that to heart. You don't know what the Lord will do with the instruction that you are giving to these kids. So be patient and persevere. Don't grow weary in well-doing. I think that's the theme verse for child you know, raising. Let us not grow weary in doing well. Teach your children these things, 
and the Lord will use them. You see that opening up. She'd been taught since childhood, just as Lois and Eunice, the mother and grandmother of Paul, had taught him these things that he would one day use to spread the gospel throughout the world. So Mary had learned these things, and now her mind is full of scripture, and the Lord uses it beautifully. Now, Mary is not the first woman to sing in scripture. Remember Miriam, uh, as God's people are brought over to the other side of the Red Sea, or the, uh, they are delivered from the hand of Pharaoh, his army is crushed. What's the first thing she does? She breaks forth into song. We see that happening again and again. Another great example is Hannah, this poor childless woman uh, who laments her, her, her situation so deeply before the Lord. And the Lord blesses her, doesn't he, with the prophet Samuel. She is given this child, and she sings his praises. First Samuel 2, 1, and Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. And then she goes on to sing the praises of God. And there are so many similarities between her song and Mary's because you have two hearts that are appreciating God's work of salvation, his mercy, his goodness, his greatness. And that should be something that, that happens in our lives as well. We don't need to be, you know, given this miraculous birth, but we should be grateful for the way that God has blessed us day in and day out. You know, the devil spends all of his time trying to get you to focus on the things that are against you. What does he do? He, he takes the molehill of problems that you have and he gives you a microscope, a telescope, a, a magnifying glass, I think would be the best example. And he says... Look at these things. All of them stand against you. Oh, you should lament. You should grind your teeth. You should be bitter day in, day out at all the things that are against you. He does that with Christians. What is his aim? He wants to bring you to despair so that your heart pours forth complaints. And what does that do for the people around you? You know, the person who comes into your presence is, oh, let me tell you about my life. Problem, 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 problem. After a while, you're like, oh, I just want to go home now and stare at the wall. Thank you, brother. That, uh, instead, we should turn our attention, throw away the magnifying glass, and turn our attention in the mountain of blessings. Yes, there are things that stand against you in this world, but what are they compared to the things that you have from God? And as you sing his praises, thanking him for the, the singular mercies that he's shown you, does that not exalt him? And does that not lift up those who are around you, edifying them, building them up in the way that, that Mary built up Elizabeth and then countless, countless millions and billions of people after her? A word of encouragement coming forth from your heart in due season. Oh, what good it can do. Or just a word of praise to God. Somebody comes into your presence and says, do you know what the Lord has done for me this day? And how it lifts your burdens as well, as you are reminded of the mercies of God. But I must go on. Mary gives God, and this is so important. It really is. It seems like a minor thing. Mary gives to God the name of Savior, not just Savior of the world, but her Savior. Why is that so very important? Well, it reminds us of our position before God saved us, but it also reminds us of Mary's position before God's uh, salvation came into her life. Mary is a, a humble handmaiden of the Lord, but a sinner who needs a savior. 
How very different from the almost fourth person of the Trinity in Roman Catholicism. Mary here is singing the praises of her Savior. Why did she need a Savior? Because she was a sinner in need of God's grace and mercy in redemption. And she exalts him for that. She ascribes her salvation to God because she's unable to save herself. She needs Jesus. If ever a mother appreciated her child's working, it was Mary. Before he had even done anything yet. Because he was going to be the one who didn't just get her. I mean, every Jewish woman at this point in time looked at the birth of a son or the impending birth of a son with this expectation. This will be the one who takes care of me in my old age, who gets me out of trouble, who stands with me against my enemies. But Jesus was going to defeat her three greatest enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, and deliver her. So how different is this Mary who sings this song from the, uh, the idolatrous, blasphemous creation of the Roman Catholic Church? Mary prayed to God in appreciation of what Jesus was going to do because Mary needed a mediator. Mary needed Jesus Christ. Don't pray to Mary. Pray to the one that Mary prayed to. Go to the Father through the Son. Mary praises him and speaks of the mercy given to all who fear him. Now, this is very important as well. Without the fear of the Lord, there is no wisdom. Without the fear of the Lord, there is no salvation. Mary feared God. Mary was saved. And she understood how to be saved through faith. And so she put her faith in the Lord. And she understood that a Jew is not one who is one outwardly. It's not by descent, but rather it is through that faithful work. And then she goes on to rehearse. I wish we could, we could unpack this, and, uh, but we don't have days and days and days to go through this. I think eventually there would be a revolt. I would be carried out of the pulpit and so on. But I, I pray that you will consider all of the things that she rehearses, the fact of, that we are Abraham's seed, that God had sent his son to deliver Abraham's seed. How do we become Abraham's seed? Well, it's not by birth. If you'll take a look in your Bibles, turn with me to Galatians, if you would. And I want you to turn to Galatians chapter 3. Jesus was sent into the world to fulfill that, redemp uh, that redemptive promise that was made to Abraham, that from his seed would come the blessing of the nations the deliverer, the Messiah. And when it is speaking of Abraham's seed, it's not speaking of simply those who are descended from him genetically. Looking at Galatians chapter 3 and then verse 26, for you are all sons of God. And as he speaks to the Galatians, keep in mind this is a mixed multitude, Gentiles and Jews. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to his promise. Jesus, the deliverer of Abraham's seed, that's who she is singing praises of. Those who have entered into that relationship with God through Christ have become the heirs of Abraham and his seed. Now, this is the fulfillment of promises that were thousands of years in the making, that were made in eternity past, and here they are coming to pass as Jesus is being born. 
Now let me just make one application. You remember my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. That's the way that Mary begins her song. I'm gonna ask you a simple question. Can you say those words in truth yourself? Does your soul magnify God your Savior? Do you lift him up? Do you know him as your Savior? Do you know what it means to have the joy of your salvation this day, the way that Mary did? You don't have to be the mother of the Messiah to know God the way that Mary knew him, in that saving way. If you do, then you have seen God's promises to save all that would come to him by faith, carried out and going forth in your life. And if that's the case, and I speak to those of you who can say, yes, my soul has rejoiced in God my Savior, but sometimes I don't feel rejoicing in myself. Know this, that if God has begun that great work in you, he will carry it forth. Walk by faith and not by sight. Your salvation is yet nearer than when you first believed. And that's the finality of your salvation. Our days, if we could just see, man, sometimes I, it'd be weird, wouldn't it? Um, if we had a counter over our heads, gradually ticking down for the day, either when Christ returns or we go, you would notice that everybody's counter is going down to the same thing if, if it's when Christ returns, or most of us. But if we could just think of those days ticking by, the worldling would think of them with, with horror, looking at the counter every day in the mirror, thinking, this is awful, this is awful, so on. But for us, think about it this. Your, your days are ticking down to the point at which you see your Savior face to face. The day when you, I'll be talking about this today, uh, later on um, in the evening when we go to Philippians, but the day when you meet with the one whom you have been praising, what a day of joy that should be to pass through the veil. How it should be that we envy those who have gone on before us, who are already praising God in his presence and looking forward to that day when they'll be given their new bodies and they will stand in a new creation. That's what's coming, brothers and sisters. Not something to be feared, not something to be avoided, but something wonderful is going to happen to all those who know him. But for those of us who, well, who may be hearing my voice today who don't know the Lord, that's a problem, isn't it? That you can't rejoice. And that the timers that ticks down to the inevitability of your death is not something that brings joy, but rather fear, hopelessness, despair. It need not be the case, though. The same joy that Mary had as she sang this song can be yours. A joy that wells up from the heart because there's a spring of living water there because the Holy Spirit's been given to you. I want you to have that. I can't tell you the depths of despair. You may have experienced them in some measure yourself. The depths of despair that I felt prior to coming to the Lord. I felt like an orphan in the universe so very often. There were things that brought me counterfeit joy for a little while, but nothing compared to the joy that I experienced when I closed with the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to have that. But it can't happen unless you surrender to God until you stop trying to save yourself, until you, you put aside your pride and come to him by faith. I pray that you, if you haven't already done that, that you would do that this day. What is stopping you other than your own stubbornness? 
Let's go before him. God, our Father, we thank you so much for the examples that you give us in Scripture. This wonderful song given to this humble, uh, probably teenage girl in the middle of what the world would have called nowhere, and yet this was really the center of the world at that point in time. A point and a place where light was about to emanate that would change the world forever. This young woman was chosen to bring forth your son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, and you gave her such joy. I pray, Lord, that you would give us that joy as well from the same source, the indwelling presence of your Holy Spirit. May it be that when we sing, Lord, we do sing with grace in our hearts from that that reservoir of hope and joy that you give to your people. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name.